There's lots of, lots of genetic defect in everyone. We think the average healthy person has a couple of hundred genes with defective function in their genome. And there's probably lots of what we think of as subclinical symptoms wandering around across the whole population. So I think that's kind of the future vision of the company is everyone would benefit from having a full understanding of their genetic background. And it's a complicated problem that the doctors don't understand, the patients certainly don't understand, and they were really at the frontier of understanding. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world, and I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Matthew Davis is the head of AI at Vitae, a medical genetic testing company. He applies a really wide range of machine learning techniques to the genetic testing problem, which I think is one of the most interesting applications of ML today. I'm super excited to talk to him. Invitae is actually a household name in my house because my wife runs a startup that sells to Invitae and I run a startup that also sells to Invitae. So you're one of the very few overlapping customers to us. So I, I feel like I know Invitae very well, but I was thinking if that wasn't the case, I would definitely not know Invitae. So I was wondering if you could describe kind of what Invitae does and how I might interact with your products as a consumer. Yeah, sure. So for starters, we're a medical genetic diagnostics company. And I'm pretty sure by volume of tests, we're the biggest in the world. Which we're, is amazing because you're, you're fairly new for, for a public company, right? Didn't you start in, in 2010 or something like that? Yeah, that's about right. So the company itself is about a decade old. And it's not a coincidence because the availability of high throughput, low cost genome sequencing really came online in like 2008 with mm -hmm. Illumina like making a a scalable platform. And at that point, it became clear that instead of analyzing one or two genes at a time, that you could be analyzing lots of genes for less money. And I think the strategy that was clear to the founders was, here's a market with, it's a very narrow market with a very high margin that actually should be an adjustable market of everyone with access to modern medicine. And Instead, the cost could be low and the volume could be high. Mm -hmm. And that if you pursued that strategy, there was actually way bigger benefits to like mankind and also shareholders of a company because you'd start to learn things about medical genetics and disease and probably most importantly, relationships to treatments that you weren't going to learn if you took a small, small addressable market strategy. So and just again, I think, I think you like live in this, but you know, for someone who hasn't had a genetic test, you know, for a medical reason, what would be a scenario where, where you'd actually want that and, and what would it do for you? Yeah. So classically diagnostics were not about genetics. They were about, you know, your cholesterol is high or some other hormone is low or whatever. Genetic diagnostics were first kind of proven in mass at breast cancer, where we know there are genetic predispositions that would change your treatment strategy where the risk is high enough that if you, if your, your mother or your sister, or your grandmother, your aunt had breast cancer at age 70, people get cancer when they're old, but if it's at age 35, that's way scarier. And when we added genetic analysis on top of that, we could further partition that to, Oh, because they had this variant, they were early cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And then your doctor can help you make, the best proactive decisions about how to avoid it. At the extreme level, that's like a proactive mastectomy. 
And, but there are lots of other intermediates, including like which type of drug would be most effective for you? Should you risk the downsides of chemo? Should you just wait? Right. So it worked with breast cancer. And then as we started being able to analyze more and more genes, we started discovering more and more things that it works for. I think one thing to keep in mind is that human geneticists in general, geneticists, they historically study like horrific things, right? Like whether you're studying fruit flies or mice or humans, like it's big effects, big, there's this old saying like big, big mutations have big effects. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, we study things that give you a heart attack at an early age or make you grow tumors or have crippling nervous system diseases, right? And there are lots of people <laughs> at risk for that who don't know it. Right. But I think the real future is there's lots of, lots of genetic defect in everyone. We think the average healthy person has a couple of hundred genes with defective function in their genome. And there's probably lots of what we think of as subclinical symptoms wandering around across the whole population. So I think that's kind of the future vision of the company is everyone would benefit from having a full understanding of their genetic background. And it's a complicated problem that the doctors don't understand. The patients certainly don't understand. And they were really at the frontier of understanding. So that's a little bit of the history and a little bit of the, the future mission statement. And so, you know, I'd imagine that a lot of people listening to this have done one of the kind of consumer tests, like maybe like Ancestry or 23andMe. So, so how yeah. is what you do different from what happens there? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And it's one that pre-COVID riding on a plane, someone asks you what you do and they're like, oh, like 23andMe. And you're like, oh man, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So, I mean, the, the obvious difference to the like interaction with our customers is that historically it goes through a doctor. It's a medical test and you want that provisioned and, and administered by a medical professional. And 23andMe is, a, you know, it's a fascinating company, but they've focused on, you know, things like whether or not you like cilantro not whether or not you are at risk for a disease. And they have tried to move into a diagnostic space, but they're not built for that. And we finally acknowledged that a couple of years ago, after many years of not wanting to offer a medical diagnostic procedure directly to patients, because we didn't want people to go with information in hand, but not understanding an explanation that they could get from a a medical caregiver. So that's the real difference is like we have medical caretakers in place, but we now have a strategy where we let patients initiate their orders. And that's really because there's a lot of the country that doesn't have access to one of the few thousand genetic counselors in the US. So there are places where it's a six month wait. There's places where like, you're just not gonna go. And thanks to telemedicine, thanks to you know software engineering, it's easier now for us to let a patient who mother had breast cancer, start the process themselves. We refer them to a telemedicine genetic counselor who helps them by being their medical caregiver without them having to wait six months to go to a medical center that's 100 miles away. And we think that's great. Does it lead to a little more confusion? You know, like, well, we used to say we're not consumer facing and now we have, you know, patient facing order forms. But that's really the, the difference is like, we are trying to help people with a complicated medical problem, not find out your ancestry, unless of course your ancestry has direct bearing on the medical risk. Got it. That makes sense. And and so, I mean, how does AI fit into this? Like you, you talk about a broad range. When I've talked to you in the past, I've been kind of 
shocked by the number of different ML kind of fields that you, you draw from. So I was thinking maybe you could give me an overview of the different problems where, where you know, machine learning techniques can, can help with what you all are doing. Yeah. So you know that we, we say AI and it was a like an easy to adopt term, especially, you know, for the last few years. But when I think of AI, I really think of like every chapter of a textbook of a field of computer science. It's been around for many decades. And a lot of it, thankfully, is machine learning, and some of it's not. So some of it is uh, like optimization algorithms and robotic planning and so forth that has been around for a long time, and it's still making rapid advance in in those fields, but maybe is a little less well known to machine learning folks. Mm -hmm. And then a bunch of it is uh, you know machine learning approximations that can make a problem tractable that wasn't tractable before. So I mean the actual applications, you know, we have a key scaling problem in a lot of ways where like a manufacturing company and that our volume tends to almost double every year. And we have a laboratory that has to run assays with, you know, actual robots. We have rather complicated, like standard operating procedures and business process models that need careful execution, not to mention like, you know, audit logging and accounting stuff. It's the medical field. So you have to be compliant and follow, you know, not just like HIPAA laws, which are complex, but also like contractual obligations to insurance companies and things like that. So there's a lot of complicated process modeling. And then there's a lot of knowledge worker problems, right? So we have on staff, you know, dozens of PhD geneticists and biologists who have done this Herculean task of curating the medical genetic literature for any scrap of evidence that could inform whether this, this variant that seems to be breaking the function of a gene in a patient could actually be the causal factor that puts them at higher risk. Because we still don't know most of the most of the variants that are analyzed in medical genetics, we're still uncertain what their eventual effect would be. And that involves you know literature mining, all the most contemporary NLP methods for entity extraction, relationship modeling, linking to ontologies. You know we don't we don't get into things like summarization because it ha you know. Even the fanciest, most expensive model, it's not confident enough to write a medical report for someone, right? But the sort of language modeling that goes into something like GPT-3, like we can use that for concept embeddings, for extraction, for classification, for recommendation engines. So we have a lot of that NLP work that a lot of the rest of the world thinks of. Mm -hmm. And then I've got a fair chunk of computer vision problems, whether they're things like document processing, computer vision, or their computational biology problems. And about half of my team is devoted to, to more core research, like advancing future products, doing academic collaborations with folks. So they're really trying to struggle with that problem I stated before, which is like geneticists traditionally focus on big diseases with big mutations, but there's a lot more subtle signal going on for almost everyone on the planet. And in a sense, it's a signal detection problem mm -hmm. and it's a high order of complexity. If it's silly to think of it this way, but if you just imagine we have 25,000 genes working in combinations, right? How do you search a space of 25,000 com combinations, 25,000 factorial combinations, right? So the hope is that things that were completely intractable before by enumeration could be tractable by approximation. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's, you know, one of the great hopes for computational biology is that we can produce a search space with machine learning. And then, yeah, so we covered computational biology, 
knowledge and operations. You know, that's <laughs> that's a big that's a big breadth of stuff to worry about. And then on top of that, I think there are things like graph embeddings for heterogeneous networks, where there's lots of reasons to believe that heterogeneous entities out in the literature shouldn't be just treated as like word tokens that you you learn with a language model, but instead you can layer on causality and known relationships. Like biology is this kind of fascinating field because if you if you really cared about Newtonian mechanics, then you probably don't need a neural network approximator to tell you like how fast the ball is going to roll down the incline plane with a certain coefficient of friction and whatever, right? Because you can physically model it really accurately. Mm-hmm. And in biology, if you open a biology textbook, there are like all these cartoons of this protein binds to this protein and they both bind to the DNA and then the RNA is made and whatever. And they are like, they're not just cartoons that you memorize when you're a, a biology undergrad. They're like actual physical models of a um, material process of the universe. Mm-hmm. But the uncertainty is way higher, right? They are rough drafts. And because it's a tiny little, you know, sub microscopic machines, right? We historically, like, we don't just take the picture. I guess that's a lesson that's true because electron microscopy is now getting really good and x-ray crystallography in some ways is really good at that but for the most part you do it by inference right you do some experiment and the readout is like you look at a different colored of like jelly of agarose in a tray right and it's all by inference so you know when you see like one of those like csi tv shows and they're looking at the big bands of dna that's a very abstract version of the actual physical process and that's where like it's great for machine learning because there's enough structure to that cartoon that you don't have to imagine every possible force vector. You have some constraints, but it's uncertain enough that it's not Newtonian mechanics. So modeling it with uncertainty and then using those indirect observations to, to guide your search, like in a lot of ways, it's a perfect field for, for using model-based machine learning. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So I, I'm, I'm taking like a mental note of all the different applications that you, you mentioned. I have so many questions on each one, but maybe we should start with the last one because it seems very intriguing, right? So like, why would a company like yours care about modeling like the, the chemistry of, of molecules? Like, what, what, what does that do for you? Yeah, so I mean, we know that if you, if you put a change in this DNA sequence, that there's a high likelihood that it's going to change what amino acid is put in the protein. Like mm-hmm. very, very predictably, we can predict that from basic molecular biology knowledge, but we don't necessarily know that's going to affect the function of the protein. Mm-hmm. And the easier ways historically to make computational estimates of that were, you know, compare the sequence of that gene across a thousand related species or, you know, 10,000 humans and see like, is it always the same letter? then it's probably important because if it's not important, then evolution will let it float around. But there's actually quite a lot of flexibility in those proteins where they're still functional. So there might be a subset of people where it's different and it doesn't actually matter. And if you're an actual biochemist, then you might go do experiments in the laboratory, like seeing how the proteins actually touch each other and discovering that the enzyme works better or doesn't work as well. And it's really expensive and time consuming to do that at that like slow process and scale. But if you had molecular models of those physical properties, then you could do in silico experiments and say like, well, I can't be sure that the enzyme is not going to be as efficient, but based on a whole lot of- You say in silico, even like in silicon? I don't know, that's a new Uh, term to me, but I love it. Yeah, 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 right. So, I mean, that's not me, right? That's a, you know, biology loves loves Latin. That's Um, great. 
And yeah, so that's a that's a well tested phrase in computational biology for a long time. But yeah, that's the the, the right answer. <laughs> that's what it means. Um, so you're doing this simulation, uh-huh. and and then you can say like, well, with some certainty based on the parameterization of those actual biochemical experiments that other people have done, this looks like a big change, and therefore it's going to affect the function of the gene, and therefore we have more reason to believe in a very like Bayesian sense, like our belief increases that this is the cause of someone's disease. And is this like, is this something that would be like kind of something you'd really do in the, the future? Or is it like in use now? Is this like something that everyone would have to do to, to make a realistic model of like, like, I guess how, how in use is this kind of modeling for, for deciding I, I mean, what genes to look at? This is something you do every day. Like, I mean, this is definitely a thing that our company does. Like there's a team that does this and, you know, I think it's, it's also an interesting example where I think it's a case where industrial research has more potential than traditional academic research just because of the volume, right? Like the biggest academic collaborations for genome sequencing don't actually get to the same number of people as come through our, our, our samples. And they're not as enriched for people who actually have disease, like the big population genome sequencing centers in China and the UK and, and in the US. You know, they're not generally systematically going after people with disease. Like we have an ascertainment bias. It's actually a benefit if we want to study disease because people with disease and their families come through the door. And that means that we can do stuff that you can't do if you're working at the Broad Institute at MIT and Harvard or at the, you know, at Cambridge with the European Bioinformatics Institute. Like we have access to data that you can use these methods on that no one else can. And, and how do you actually set up this problem like how, how do you like formulate it I'm, I'm trying to like put this my mind is just like how would i set this up as like a machine learning problem that i could actually train on like like is it, is it standard like what the loss function is and like what what can you actually observe to to put into this yeah right <laughs> so, i mean i don't think there's a canonically true answer to that question but you know we can talk a little bit about the pros and cons of approaches right so i mean one thing is it's not like a consumer recommender system where you recommend products and people click on them and buy them or they don't. In fact, like that's just, that's diagnostics in general has this problem of no ground truth. Mm-hmm. Like people, people die of symptoms on hospital beds and their doctors don't actually know in some sort of like, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Aristotle sort of way, like why they died. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just that we have a stronger belief about the causality. So you can take a labeled data set and say like these people were diagnosed and they had that variant. And I'll make a model that can predict that outcome with a supervised learning method. But you're not actually dealing with ground truth because some of those people had the disease. They had the variant and they had the disease, but they actually had the disease because they smoked cigarettes for 50 years or because they were 90 years old or some other confounding factor was there. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you want to try and think of it as belief, then you can go down to like Bayesian probabilistic graphical model, causality, Judea Pearl, explainable AI path that I think people are excited about talking about, but you have to know, like a lot of human knowledge goes into that. And it's not as simple as like, I have some labeled data and I'm going to train an arbitrarily deep neural network to, to approximate the softmax or something. So you end up working a lot with like, how do I take those physical models of what I think is going on in biology and you try and design the, the algorithm to do that, whether it's with like causal graphical models, or it's just knowing like, from these feature vectors, I can learn an auto-encoded representation that should, in theory, 
account for these factors we know from the physical model are important. And then I'm going to let the neural network set the weights by showing it what are observations that are the closest to the ground truth it will ever have. But it sounded like you, there's sort of sub problems here that, that people work on, right? Like you talked about, you know, kind of people like looking at like proteins and mixing them together and, and kind of seeing what happens. Like, is that like a, like a sub problem of this bigger problem where you could have different observations and, and build a different model around it? Yeah. Right. So, I mean, we do have a wet lab team that is like collecting basic molecular biology data, but one of the awesome things about biology is that lots of other people are doing that. Right. So, you know, lots of professors and lots of universities and lots of their grad students are collecting and publishing data in a way that is ingestible for us to learn some of those things. But there are places where you, you may identify a key deficiency in that knowledge set. You're like, well, it's worth it for us to do this experiment because it would really help us parameterize what we think is missing in this model. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so then you have like, from, a, from an industrial research perspective, you kind of have to think about the cost benefit. Like, mm -hmm. is it worth spinning up a wet lab initiative to do stuff that's hard to do at scale to fill in that, you know, you want that feature vector. It, mm -hmm. it better be worth it because it's not cheap. Sure, sure. Although it's, it sounds actually kind of, well, I don't know, it's evocatively similar to like exploring a space of like hyperparameters for, <laughs> you know, for a... I mean, I think like, it's, I mean, maybe it's more like if you had a product recommender and you knew everything that everyone had ever clicked on, but it just still doesn't seem to have that much accuracy. So you send out some design researchers to talk to your customers and find like sit in their house with them and talk to them. And be oh, like, oh, I see. I see. Like, oh, that's weird. Everyone's buying Adidas. I didn't notice that before. Is that in the model? Let's go find out all the shoes everyone buys and then Got see it. if that puts the accuracy. Got it. That makes sense. But the thing is, is like if you if you had the whole life history of like me as an individual and everything I'd ever done, then you might be able to start down the path of that modeling. But that's crazy. No one would do that. You just look at my ad click data and make some recommender that if it has 38% accuracy is going to make a bunch of money for a ad company, right? But if you're talking about someone's health and like complex things like biology, then you want it to be higher accuracy and you, you got to go actually model stuff out deeper. So I guess another another whole like field that you that you talked about doing is sort of the, what do you call it? Like sort of medical NLP or like, you know, bioinformatics, right? You know, and, and you talked about, I mean, this is one thing I've, I've been kind of curious about, you know, we've seen a lot of progress, very visible progress in NLP, like, you know, notably like GPT-3, but also like these, you know, word embeddings becoming super popular. Has that, has that influenced bioinformatics? Is that like directly apply? Is it, can you like fine tune these models on like medical text domains or what's the state of the art there today? Yeah, right. So, I mean, I think there's two big problems in the industry that people would love to solve. One of them is comprehending medical records, and the other one is comprehending the medical literature. Mm -hmm. And when you state the problems, they sound the same, right? It's like, I want to extract the entities, map their relationships, and then link them to ontologies so that I can structure the data and then make queries over it. And if you can do that, then, you know, like the challenge, the practical challenges are things like, can I show to one of our clinical scientists the right piece of literature at the right time to help them make the right insight about this genetic variant that's never been observed in someone before, right? And then if you look at the medical records, it's like, how do I take this like allegedly structured, unstructured data and turn it into something that's actually structured so that we can like tra make trajectories of people's disease progression or predict their risk? 
Mm-hmm. And so it turns out that training training language models on like you know Google Books and New York Times articles and Wikipedia like, does not actually help that much. Mm-hmm. But also, kind of surprisingly, like several years ago, I did some experiments when I was still I used to be at IBM Research where I had a research group. We did some experiments where we had domain specific corpuses and general corpuses. We would train the same models, and kind of to my surprise, the bigger general corpus helped more than the specific corpus. And that was like an early transfer learning kind of insight. Like take the biggest corpus you can get and then transfer learn is a good idea. Mm-hmm. What's hard is the concepts are the same to humans, but when you look in a medical record, it says like MGM BRCA, and that means maternal grandmother had breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And you look in the, uh, the medical literature that's published academically, doesn't even talk about the relatives and it doesn't even say breast cancer. It says, you know, malignant neoplasm of the tissue. Like you don't even know it's talking about the same thing. Right. Mm. So mapping the concepts across is tricky and just the syntax, right? Like the medical abbreviations and that's, it's almost like they're, it's, you know, it's almost like it needs its own language model. So, I mean, those are some of the hard problems for contemporary methods to, to actually work on, especially out of the box. Mm-hmm. But we do take things like, you know, so we do take encoder-decoder-based sort of transformer models and adapt them pretty readily with supervised training. And it's definitely better than starting from scratch, but it still requires like, you know, domain experts labeling stuff to, to get there. Or it takes, you know, some like weak supervision data programming sort of methods where people are writing roles that make a lot of sense to weekly label the data. And, you know, it's not as good as human-labeled expert data but that you can kind of bootstrap yourself into having a better data set to train on. So, you know, some of those methods work really well in biology. Yeah, I don't know if that's it. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. That do, do you have the sense that, well, I don't know. I have the sense that recently NLP methods have improved a lot. Like when I look at, you know, scores that I'm used to from like a decade or two ago, yeah. they just seem much better over the last um, couple of years. Has the same thing happened in the in the medical field? Kind of, right? So like if you take, you know, if you take like the scores on question answer data sets, you know, like the model's better at answering Stanford question answer questions than I am, right? Super, very impressive, right? Like, <laughs> but but I don't think you would expect the same thing to be true with a medical question answer and a bunch of like specialist doctors in whatever domain. So like no one expects uh, a chatbot powered by GPT three to be better at giving medical advice, but it doesn't mean. But that said, like the language model that's learned could be extremely useful for facilitating a human expert, and so I think that's where the hope is at this point. It's this kind of like AI assistant, you know, better information retrieval, better support for the expert is the current hope, right? Got it. So I guess, you know, like a general problem that a lot of people ask me about, and I know a lot of people listening to this uh, kind of would would kind of wonder about is, is how do you think about structuring your team? Like you talked about half the people doing kind of core research, but then also it seems like, you know, what you're doing is very connected to, to what the company is doing. Like, do you try to like, literally separate the people that are doing the sort of like applied stuff and research stuff, or do you separate it by the, the sort of field of work or, or how, how do you think about that? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think I suspect the answer that I have today will be different than the answer I have in a few years, which I know is different from the answer I had a few years ago. And it feels like one of those things that like we'll keep reinventing. Like we'll we'll keep reinventing, you know, how to deploy software and we'll keep reinventing how to provision infrastructure and we'll come back to the same basic principles that people thought of a few decades ago, but we'll keep refining it. And you know, so right now, like the the company, you know, the company was effectively, you know, the company still worked like a startup with very clear product-driven vertical teams. And the idea that we were going to imbue a machine learning capability to the company was hard to, to figure that out, right? And it's a little different if you're if you're at Google and like, well, you know, the company is built on machine learning based information retrieval. So we kind of expect everyone to take a machine learning approach to something. Right. So, you know, the I guess the direct answer is like we have a team, uh, we call it a functional team. Everyone goes to meetings together, hangs out together, checks in together, but people have different projects. And, you know, it has definitely been hard for some of the team members, like a common source of feedback is like, I don't know what everyone else is doing because everyone is working on something else. I'm used to working with four people on a specific project and we talk every day in a stand-up meeting and in this team, like everyone's doing something different. And so, you know, for the people who, on the people on the team who like went to grad school and experienced like what that's like to get a PhD where it's ultimately up to you to do your thing, they're more comfortable with it because they're like, yeah, of course we're all doing our own thing. In reality, like I really hope everyone's not doing their own thing, right? Like I hope that there is cross fertilization and support and it's like kind of inherently matrixed. But the goal is, uh, you know, we, we reserve some of the people's time for, for research because if you don't explicitly kind of set aside the commitment, then it'll be absorbed by whatever like demand of the product team in the short term. And then we set aside some people's time to develop platforms that are modular and reusable with the hopes that we continue to imbue that throughout the rest of the engineering teams. And then we set aside some people who are then like functionally assigned to specific engineering projects, whether it's to realize one of the research projects into production, or it's to leverage one of the platforms for a problem, or maybe it's just like someone has a pretty straightforward problem and they need like a scikit-learn model and it's going to take someone like an afternoon to prototype it in three weeks to get it in production. So we stick someone in there for a sprint or two and make sure it happens. I see. So the, I guess in some sense, it's, it's very zone defense kind of strategy. Like it has to be flexible. Right. Right. And, and do you then hire people who have sort of like knowledge of like multiple topics? These seem like such kind of deep fields that are kind of different. Like, is it possible to find someone that, that knows about multiple of these applications yeah so we hire people with specific expertise for sure like i am actually just extremely fortunate like i i was a software engineer who went to get a graduate degree in computational biology at a time when doing that probably also meant that you're going to do white lab biology and then i went and worked at ibm in a research division with just this huge diversity of industrial interests so i was exposed to lots of different ai methods and that was not something that I knew was going to happen to me, but was really fortunate. And what that means is I, I met people in different industries at different conferences to understand like, oh, there's this kind of boutique thing that was, you know, kind of popular two decades ago, but continues to be a core technology for NASA or Toyota. And not a lot of people pay attention to it. 
but man, it can solve a lot of problems, right? Which you're just not going to find like a Coursera course on. So, you know, it's great because we can find people with that expertise. And if they're, if they're CS PhDs, kind of fortunately, right? So computer science PhDs are generally interested in stuff. Like if you, if you practice uh, NLP algorithms, you're probably still interested in in computer vision, right? So I think that's a you know that's a fortunate thing, right? I can I can find someone with the expertise in information retrieval, and they can still make really meaningful contributions to to other types of problems and other subject domains. One of the harder things is getting the the biology knowledge solid enough that they can talk to the biologist and the other stakeholders and quickly understand the problem statement. That makes sense, and and I guess like one of the things that you talk about a lot, I think, is the importance of engineering to making all this stuff work. Do you, do you hire just like kind of pure engineers on your team or do you rely on outside teams to provide that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's really important on the research projects. It's really important to be able to prototype things mm-hmm. because like, I hope, I hope your listeners find me eloquent, but like my experience in life is I may have some beautiful complex system in my head and I have a very little ability to communicate it to other people's brains and building a prototype really helps. Totally. And you need a diversity of skills and a, even a small team to make that happen. Like it's just a waste of everyone's potential to ask the algorithms expert to write some React front end that you're going to throw away after you show it off to a stakeholder. Right. So it's better to have a, you know, better to have a JavaScript programmer on hand for that. Do you have, um, a, do you have a ratio that you shoot for? I'm, I'm just kind of curious about this of like sort of algorithms to like implementers. I think it just depends, but we try to maintain like a, a bench of depth so that we can recombine it right like i think a lot of really high impact projects can be done with like one algorithms person prototypes a thing hands it off to one or two engineers who implement the thing and then we further hand it off after it's um, implemented to an engineering team that's going to love and care for it in the long term and maybe come back to us if they need new features but to them it looks like you know software that could have come from anywhere. Other projects you need, you know, we have some some of our more challenging algorithmic problems where we have, like, we, we like the approach of probabilistic programming. And, you know, there's not a lot of mature frameworks out there for that. Like Google and Uber AI both popularize some, but you need some pretty heavy lifting on algorithm development, some kind of fearless backend engineering chops to make anything happen. And then once you have the ability to make anything happen, then you also want to layer in like the computational biology expertise to make sure the right modeling step that I described before was happening. So you know that could be a that could be a several person team just to make the prototype because it's complicated and the tooling requires help and it's not as simple as like you know a web backend and a React front end or something. Mm-hmm. What are the things that I've kind of been noticing? You know, we we've at, at my company, you know, we've seen more and more interest in customers coming in from pharma and, and kind of medical stuff. And it always feels to me like of all of our customers, it's the biggest kind of culture clash. Like just like, you know, basic stuff that I feel like I haven't discussed in a long time. Like, you know, they'll be suspicious of like open source software. I'm just like, oh my God, like, I, like what? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, you know, is it like, you know, 1995, you know, does that not happen at, at Invitae because it's, it's sort of a newer company and sort of, you know, more maybe CS focused or, or do you also kind of feel that kind of working with, with biologists? No, I think, I don't think it's a problem here. And like, certainly I saw that problem with 
IBM customers at times. I was lucky, you know, at IBM, they were huge investors in Linux 20 years ago. And like, it was mm -hmm. clear to everyone why that continued to be the case. But I would see it from other companies who were like, I would prefer the lower performance, more expensive proprietary thing. Thank you. Right. I mean, I think, you know, one of the virtues of Invitae is like, it does have a, like a Bay Area ethos and, you know, get there, get there faster, get there cheaper is a good idea. Totally. So I don't think there's any skepticism there, but, you know, you sometimes you collaborate with like the insurance agencies or the, or the insurance payers or, you know, like Medicare, mm -hmm. and then you're into a whole ballpark of like, it's not even individual skepticism, right? It's like, and it's not even institutional skepticism. It's like codified in contracts, the skepticism, <laughs> right? Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, for us, it's not a problem at all. I think I would imagine, you know, the bigger the company, the older the company, <laughs> it's probably true in every sector, but a lot of the big old companies in technology got over it a long time ago. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you know, we always end with two questions. And I want to make sure we have time for them. They're, they're kind of broad and feel free to expound a little bit. But, you know, one thing we always ask people is kind of uh, when you look at like what people are seeing in, or what people are doing in ML, like what's a topic that you think people don't pay enough attention to? Maybe like a skill set that you'd like to hire for, but nobody's studying or something that you'd like to spend more time on if you could. Yeah, I mean, so just reasoning in general. And I think this happens, you go to, if you go to like a general AI conference, whether it's one in recent favor, like ICML or NeurIPS, or it's like the, like the older triple AI sort of standard conferences, lots of people will, keynote speakers will talk about like fast and slow AI or system one and system two or whatever. But I think like no one ever actually wants to do reasoning because it's so hard. Right. And, um, but then you see like, like communities of self-flagellating academics lamenting that they're only competing to get a higher, you know, F1 score on some published data set that's been around forever and what's the actual use of it all. And, and I think this conversation is also often turned to like, well, if we were doing some more complex reasoning thing, then it would be more valuable for mankind, but it's just hard, right? So that's why I said earlier, like we're, we're into the probabilistic programming ideas mm -hmm. because you can take a, you can take a causal graphical model that can be highly explainable and you can not have to Monte Carlo sample it until the end of time, like thanks to variational inference and you know frameworks like Edward and Pyro that make it a little easier. I think that's going to push our ability to reason about really complex things and bring human expertise in and let people help correct the models and do a lot of the things that I just frankly feel like people talk about doing, but are hard to do. And I think there's also a bias against systems in academic conferences, right? Like no one wants to write a, a quote unquote systems paper in a workshop. They want to write an algorithms paper that's going to get cited 10,000 times. Mm -hmm. But that work is probably more important. Right? Like putting together a thing that solves a problem is really valuable. And, you know, I wish we trained grad students to think about that instead of to think about hyperparameter tuning effectively, right? And that's, you know, if I could change one, if I could snap my fingers and change one thing about the field, I think that would be it is like pay attention to complicated systems uh, because it'll help you build things like reasoning engines. It's sort of interesting. I, I guess I've not made a connection between reasoning engines and, and systems. Like those two both seem like kind of separate tracks. Is, is there something about like making working systems in your experience that really requires like reasoning? 
What's well, I mean, so you know, if you take an example like the word embeddings or graph embeddings, uh-huh. once you have that representation of similarity, you, you can rank documents and calculate a F one score, but you can also give it to an expert and say, I, I found this thing for you. Do you think it's the right thing or not? And if they say yes, you can further process it and extract some more information out of it for a specific purpose. And if they say no, then you could ask them like, why not? Mm-hmm. And reason about the entities and relationships you extracted and actually like auto refine your model from the feedback of the user. But that's like an H that's a HCI problem. That's a, you know, an interaction problem mm-hmm. that you're not even going to start to touch unless you're open to the idea of like, building some boring system that ties together a user interface and some backend systems that are not all machine learning, right? Totally. Okay, so final final question is, is basically when you look at in your career kind of taking stuff from the sort of prototype version to like deployed in the real world and useful, where do you see the, the sort of biggest bottlenecks or biggest problems? I think the biggest fundamental problem is when you work in industry and you have an existing company, but probably also when you have like a startup and you're trying to get funding for it to have buy-in from the product philosophy from the outset, mm. right. And to have some willingness that the prototypes might not work. Mm-hmm. Right. So like you need a, you need a, you need a foundational, definitely going to work plan mm-hmm. to make a product, but to have a, I'm going to reserve 20% of the resources to try this crazier thing. We'll prototype it. And if it works, it'll be great. You got to have the person who's going to take it to market, care about that idea. Mm-hmm. When you have a bunch of researchers like hanging out, making cool prototypes, and then they, they take it around like a, like a toddler who made a thing and they're like, Oh, look at, look at this thing I made you. Don't you love me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think almost every researcher I've known in industry could identify with what I just said as the toddler. Because uh-huh. we all think we have some brilliant idea and we make a thing and we take it to people and they're like, I'm sorry, I have a deadline right now. I don't understand why does this thing that I already have a thing that I already have a thing that recommends papers. It, I think it uses a regular expression, <laughs> right? They don't care right? and they don't see the value. So, you know, you have to really get the buy-in at the beginning or you can spend a lot of time making a hard thing and probably an expensive thing happen. And uh-huh. then it doesn't actually go anywhere. And it's more emotional than strategic. Like you, you, know, you have to like be open to the idea that they might not see the value in what you want to do, <laughs> and that helps you prioritize what to do. Interesting. We've not heard that answer yet, but that that really resonates. It's a that that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. This is this is a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate your openness. Um, You're welcome. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. Doing these interviews are a lot of fun. And the thing that I really want from these interviews is more people get to listen to them. And the easy way to get more people to listen to them is to give us a review that other people can see. So if you enjoyed this and you want to help us out a little bit, I would absolutely love it if you gave us a review. Thanks.